mythologies, um, folklore, all of these kinds of things, which can grab your imagination, can also help guide you, therefore, toward meaning. Mm -hmm. um, if you accept this, the sort of world I grew up in, where which was all about, theoretically, at least all about science and such, um, there's no meaning to be found there. Mm -hmm. All there are are facts. And fact and meaning are two totally different things. Stay tuned for the show. Poets at War is sponsored by the following. Hello, I'm Sarah Levesque, Editor-in-Chief of Logo Sophia Magazine. I would like to invite you to explore our Pilgrim's Journal of Life, Love, and Literature, both in visual format and in podcast format. Our goal is to help bridge the gaps between different Christian denominations and traditions. Please visit our website at logosophiamag.com to read or listen to stories, articles, poetry, and more, all for free. We look forward to journeying with you. joined today by General Glenn Sunshine to speak about the Dark Ages, history, meaning, folklore, and mythology. Join us, won't you? The battle has just begun. This is Poets at War. God of sunset talk about uh, the dark ages um i think many in our circles kind of have a better understanding sort of of what they were and what was at least a little bit more reverence for what was going on during that time as opposed to you know what a lot of enlightenment type thinking folk uh tend to bring up but i wanted to talk to you a little bit more in depth on sort of a realistic understanding and 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 realistic uh view of what the dark ages actually meant uh where we are now etc and and were they actually dark so i guess just wherever you want to start and then i can just kind of ask questions from there i suppose okay well as soon as you start using a phrase like the dark ages we've got a basic problem of definition what do you mean right um if you're an american what you mean is this sort of whole vaguely defined period between the Roman Empire and Queen Elizabeth or something. Right. Um, that Elizabeth I, um, mm -hmm. that was uh, ignorant and backward and so on. Uh, if you are British and you use the term Dark Ages, you mean something completely different. Right. What you mean is a period known as the early Middle Ages, the period from I'll call it roughly 500 to 1,000 in round numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and when they use the word dark ages, it's not a value judgment the way it is in America. Mm -hmm. The way they use it is this is a period we don't have a lot of written records for, and so we can't see into it as well as we can into other areas. In other words, it's historically dark. We can't see mm -hmm. it. So. Right. Well, you've got to be careful. If you're reading a British author, that's what they mean by the term. In America, we'd use the term something like <clears throat> late antiquity, or early middle ages or something like that. 
Would you uh, say that all of Europe is is generally that way when referring to the Dark Ages, or particularly just Britain? Well, when you as soon as you use the term Dark Ages, you're using the English phrase, right? So fair um, enough. I was saying Irish in particular and whatever else, but yeah, I guess they were more connected with that when the area we're talking about as far as enlightenment and whatnot. So go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, but but even there lately, the amount that we know about the early Middle Ages has been growing by by quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, largely because of work in something known as the New Archaeology um, and other sources. We're finding that a lot of the things that we thought we knew about the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, may not really be accurate. I mean, the jury's still out on some of this stuff, but it seems like even that the early Middle Ages, which is generally con considered a time of retrenchment, even that may not have been quite what we think it was. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing evidence, for example, of um, trading sites uh, known generally as wicks, um, some of which seem to have been incredibly huge much more so than our written records would suggest they should have been. Um, so the archaeology seems to be bearing this out as well. And the very existence of these places as trading centers indicates that there was a lot of, of trade going on uh, across uh, northern Europe and, and beyond. One of the more intriguing finds was at a place called Tintagel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tintagel is in Cornwall. It is the legendary place of uh, King Arthur's birth. And people were, would, were saying for years how ridiculous this was because the castle at Tintagel wasn't built until the 1200s, if I remember right. You know, this is, you know, 700 years after Arthur was alive. Well, the, the, the problem, maybe 800. The, the problem is they've just recently discovered a, well, it looks like a capital city uh, at the site of Tintagel, dating mm. back to the period of Arthur's life. And what you find there is evidence that the people who lived at Tintagel were trading with, with Gaul, modern-day France, with Italy, with Greece, with Turkey, modern Turkey. Um, they're finding wares from all of these different areas at the site, which indicates, number one, it was really wealthy. Number two, it was really well-connected. Mm -hmm. but nobody even knew this existed until <laughs> <Of course. laughs> just a few years ago when the archaeologists started excavating a little bit away from the castle and found this that's 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 fascinating to begin with yeah I, i've uh i've heard a lot of scholarly stuff you know back and forth on arthur over the years and one of the one of the big ones i've heard that i'm not sure i 100 percent believe but i i feel like if you're uh, you know, there's there's all the, you know, the conglomeration of this, a little bit of that, whatever. And I'm going to get to I want to hear what your your thoughts are on Arthur. But um, one of the ones that I've seen, th the only one that d d still doesn't fully add up that I give any credence to these days is that even if it wasn't him, he had some impact uh, one way or another or uh, Arthur to Alfred or Alfred to Arthur. But Alfred is one of those ones that I look at and I go. There's some kind of connection there. I don't know what, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Alfred is, is very definitely historical. Uh, oh, Arthur, yeah. well, first of all, king is wrong. Right. Uh, Arthur was not a king. He was a basically a warlord. I believe he really existed. Mm -hmm. um, and the general pattern of him trying to resist Saxon invasions 
is probably correct. Um, he was most likely a Romano-Briton, um, a Romanized Celt, native, native, mm -hmm. native of Britain. And if you go to the Welsh tradition in the Welsh Bardic Triads, these are uh, the, within the Bardic tradition, they, they group things in three. It's a very Celtic thing to do. Yep. And uh, they they talk about, you know, they're, they're, they use the phrase red reavers. A red reaver is a, uh, a guy who's really good at slaughter. Okay, it's really what it comes down to. Right. And it says, you know, there were three red reavers and it names them. And then it says, but the reddest red reaver of all was Arthur. Hmm. And this is probably... You know, it's an oral tradition, so we can't date it, but I suspect this may be the oldest reference we have to Arthur that's preserved in this, this Bardic triad. You know, so he seems to have been a very effective war leader. Um, and the story grows from there, is my best guess. Yeah. You know, he may, he may, have, he may have been one of the Celts, uh, Romano-Britons, that were resisting the Saxon invasions, which is exactly where you know the legend places them and where um uh the bardic triad most likely dates to roughly that period i gotcha i gotcha yeah i think you know the things that have been coming out about dark ages i see bits and pieces here or there and it's hard to place it all together unless you're really studying studying you know a lot of this kind of stuff um the, the three areas that i find most fascinating um, that I'm seeing stuff come out of is uh, 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 the connections that we have between Europe and Africa that are starting to show up in random places and random ways. Um, this, this seems to be a lot more uh, uh, robust than we previously thought. Um, the, the connections between uh, uh, Brendan, you know, for, further on and, 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 and the Americas. Uh, and then the other is just, um, and if I'm pronouncing it wrong, please forgive me. I've never heard it pronounced, uh, Del Riata, um, the, uh, Scottish side of things, you know, um, mm -hmm. a lot of my, uh, ancestors were as far as I can trace them, uh, Gauls that eventually moved in, in, in and were involved in the, uh, formation of Del Riata, um, and all that, uh, situation. So, I don't know if you want to speak to any of those specifically. I know about there's um, uh, some places all over the United States that uh, may have Welsh connections, random things here or there, different people dispute one thing or another. I, you can crush any of those if you want to crush those. Okay. Um, if, if, they're, if they're totally out, you know, way out there, there's uh, Gaelic stuff in various places, um, Gaelic stuff. Um, but yeah, just anything, Africa, America, how it connects, how Europe connected to the whole world, and it seems in many cases in, in during the early Middle Ages. Okay, well, first, um, the Roman Empire had a very tight integrated market economy. Mm -hmm. uh, different regions specialized in different things. They did a lot of internal trade. But the empire was really centered around the Mediterranean basin. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Until it, there, there's an argument by a historian, uh, wrote this up probably in the 1920s by the name of Henri Pirenne, who argues that um, the Mediterranean world continued to function 
uh, rather well, actually, until the expansion of Islam. Mm -hmm. And it's the expansion of Islam that really cut Europe off from the southern Mediterranean. Um, I wouldn't go as far as Perrin does. I don't think Perrin is one of these guys that as a historian, I would one of my dreams would be to be as wrong as he is. <laughs> because because nobody really accepts the Perrin thesis completely, but mm -hmm. bits and pieces of it keep getting resurrected. Right. Um, he, he was extraordinarily influential. And, you know, I, I think he exaggerates the situation here, but it is clear that the expansion of Islam does break up a kind of unity, at least within the Mediterranean basin. That much mm -hmm. is clear. Right. Prior to that, contacts with Africa, particularly if you're thinking Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, were very clear. And in fact, the uh, the early Irish church was heavily influenced by Egyptian models of monasticism. Mm. So there's, there is a, a clear connection at that point. Um, when you move to Brendan, I think, well, in the 1970s, Tim Severin proved that you could make it from Ireland to North America in a Karak. Right. Um, personally, I think he was crazy, but he did it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think it is likely that Brendan did make it across the North Atlantic, make it probably to Newfoundland, possibly down the coast, I mean, and just imagine, you know, what he was doing was trying to find the promised land of the saints. Right. <laughs> so imagine if you're in medieval Ireland and you make it across the North Atlantic and you're going down the Atlantic coast and you find yourself in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. That could look a lot like paradise to you. Yeah. And the curious thing is that if you pick up the Gulf Stream, it will take you straight back to Ireland. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I know I know a guy who did it mm -hmm. um, in a sailboat. Mm -hmm. It will take you straight to Ireland. So it's quite possible that Brendan did, in fact, make it across the North Atlantic. We know it can be done. Um, and that whether he made it to the Caribbean or not, that's just sort of my own fantasy there. Right. But whether he made it there or not, making it back across the Atlantic is also quite possible, given the way the Gulf Stream flows. So mm -hmm. I think Brendan probably did do that. Um, we know, by the way, that Christopher Columbus was very familiar with the legend of St. Brendan. Right. He probably figured Brendan made it to Japan. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, one way or another. Oops, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. I was trying to look something up and my speakers were wrong. Go ahead. Okay. One way or another, we know that the Navigatio, the, the, the voyage of Brendan, uh, was one of the most famous legends in the Middle Ages. I mean, it was very, very widely known. Now, if you read the Navigatio, it's obvious that it is highly embroidered. And this brings up another kind of interesting point. What you see in the Navigatio is what is technically called an Imran. An Imran is a kind of uh, a saga or legend about heroes uh, voyaging out in the ocean, the adventures of, of these people out in the ocean. Um, and Brendan is clearly, a, the, the Navigatio is clearly a Christianized Imran. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes all of the, um, the characteristics of an Imran, but puts them in Christian terms so that rather than dealing with 
you know, with pagan gods and goddesses or or whatever, um, you're dealing with an island that has monks on it. You've got an island of sentient birds who are worshipers of God or whatever. Um, you can actually identify where most of these islands are. You know, so the island of birds would be in the Faroes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so it, it it's taking this is another interesting characteristic of the period. They're taking a pagan story form Mm -hmm. and baptizing it and turning it into a Christian story. And people would have understood the rules for this. They'd have understood that this is is in a sense a tall tale, but in another sense it's connected to a real person. And, you know, okay, it's exaggerated and there are all kinds of allegorical elements added to it, but this was was real. This really happened. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, um, that that's 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 great. Um, and we can go further with that if you, that's where you want to go. Um, one other person I wanted to bring up that I was just looking up, and this is a little bit later, um, uh, but uh, Maddock, Prince Maddock, are you familiar with the uh, Welsh prince? No. Eleven uh, hundreds. Uh, he was a seafaring guy, and there's connections uh, between him and some what some people say geologically are rock formations others say are ruins in um the 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 kentucky ohio area of all places uh, oh i think you're gonna go to the one in new hampshire i was gonna go well i had no i know the one uh, the, the the two main places that i know of are this one the devil's backbone in uh the kentucky ohio border which is part of a, a park Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a very uh, if if it is a rock formation, it's incredibly symmetrical. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then the the other is um, in West Virginia, there are some caves. Uh, I, do you know about the West Virginia one or no? No. Okay. There's 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 a West Virginia one that that um, the guy who discovered it and has taken pictures of it and documented it is a is a hobby historian and that's where a lot of people they attack him versus what he's saying. Um, but he he and he's uh, met, uh, 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 academically he's a dentist, <laughs> but he um, he he found these. Uh, he had some friends who had some. Oh yeah, it's the Native American carvings. They've been there forever. No, we 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 don't know how how old they are, or whatever. You want to come look at them? Sure. Um, this happened back in the '80s, I want to say, was the main main thing. It's still on private land. Apparently, some people go there on occasion, but it, they they've kind of the people who own it kind of shut it off after a little while. Um, but there are carvings that are ogham mm-hmm. in, in, in 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 the case. It's just pronounced om, by the way. Yeah, I know. It but, it, yeah. it looks like Ogum, but it's just pronounced Om. Right, right. I, yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. I I knew that, but I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, easy to make. See, easy to make. I that see one. it more than I hear it. You know? Right. <laughs> it's one of those things. But yeah, so they 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 found those, and a lot of people think it was Brendan. You know why he got all the way to West Virginia inland? If that is the case, I don't know, but it's it's fascinating. And mm. he the the guy who found them. His rough translation, he his rough translating of it and trying to figure it out, he believes it's 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 um, uh, an account of the Christmas story, and there are um, some lights that are 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 uh, some some holes for lights that are carved into this uh, 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 cave. They may not be carved; they may just be holes, but it appears that they're brightest 
in this cave, this tiny outcropping out cave, whatever, during the late December season. So yeah. there's some there's some interest there. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, and there's another one that uh, th that has been dubbed America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And that one has its own series of maybe it's maybe it's uh, Celts, maybe it's Vikings, maybe it's the mm -hmm. Knights Templar. You've got there's all right. kinds of speculation, but there there's little evidence to really go on to make a firm conclusion. Right. Um, the the problem with the Ohm alphabet is that it's a series of vertical slashes for yes. all practical purposes. Um, and distinguishing that from a scratch or something along those lines is a little bit on the tricky side. Right. Um, and uh, so you have to be careful in terms of trying to d decipher those, number one. But number two, especially when you're in an area in which there isn't a clear Irish presence, uh, figuring mm -hmm. out whether you're really dealing with uh, with Ohm writing or not is is a, a, a whole different and difficult question. Right. So I'm I'm um, I'm agnostic in terms of the Celts arriving over here. Mm -hmm. It's you know is it possible? Yeah, of course it's possible. The Vikings certainly did. Um, mm -hmm. Brendan probably did. Uh, there's no reason why others couldn't have made it as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the evidence isn't as strong as I would like to be able to say anything definitive on that. So yeah. as far as Dalriada goes, yeah. by the way, going back to Scotland, yeah. um, the, one of the key people you've got to deal with there is St. Columba, mm -hmm. uh, who has his own terribly interesting history or legend. Mm -hmm. um, not entirely sure which. Um, Columba was a fellow student with uh, Brendan of uh, St. Finian, mm -hmm. uh, who taught the 12 apostles of Ireland, as they're known, which include both Brendan and Columba um, and several others. Um, one way or another, the, like I said, the legends, we're not entirely sure how much of it is real and how much of it is legend, but Columba sailed across from Ireland and, and uh, established a monastery at the island of Iona. And from Iona, he proceeded to evangelize Scotland. And from there, uh, his followers would push into Northern England. Mm -hmm. So he's a, he's a terribly important guy. And as a matter of fact, the monks in Iona are also the uh, people who originated the Celtic cross that, that we see around today, which itself has its own really interesting uh, set of symbolism attached to it that most people don't really get. Yeah. And this is, this is all not even getting into, uh, th this is the crazy thing to me, trying to trace as best as we can, you know, and, and make educated guesses where we can't, you know, get a hundred percent, but we try our best and say, this is legend. This is, you know, and we categorize those things, but, um, I, I can't help but try and 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 look at all the amazing lines, even in other people's genealogies they've found, you know, stuff that I find. And and I'm I'm fascinated when I do my gene when I do genealogy work just for myself and my family, like regardless of you know whether whether it's true or not, even if it was just this guy 
really loved this guy and didn't know who his dad was. So he wanted to say that this guy was his dad. Like that's a family story. You know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's something that is not nothing, you know, it's at least a family story that's fascinating. And I think that, you know, we've had so much crammed down our throats over the course of the 20th century in particular, where we say there isn't ever any kind of, you know, connection. It's always, you know, uh, 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 it, it's God doesn't work in mysterious ways. He works in obvious and blatant direct ways. If we believe in God in the first place. Right. right. <laughs> and, and this is one of those things where I, I want to know, I want to talk to folks like you and I want to get to, you know, the root of it, but I'm actually far more interested. I think in, in the end, in, in, what kind of foundations do we have folklorically that we've been we haven't been told even if they're legend right what were the things that our ancestors knew or were fascinated by what were their stories what were their you know kinds of things because those shaped the way people thought well, um, let me give you let yeah. me give you a really good example um this comes from a book called the Tree of Salvation, mm-hmm. um, subtitle Yggdrasil and the Cross in the North, by mm. a Jesuit. I'm blanking out on his name. Okay. Um, in Norse mythology, Yggdrasil is the world tree. It's the tree that unites all the different parts of the world. The roots are in the underworld, the branches are in the heavens, and Middle Earth runs between them um and Yggdrasil goes through it and it basically ties everything together uh Yggdrasil is alternatively described as an ash or an evergreen um mm-hmm. and it performs a lot of different functions in Norse mythology um its roots are in the underworld by the well that gives you wisdom uh Odin was hung on Yggdrasil um for three days so that he could get access to the water of that well. Um, and at Ragnarok, at the end of the world, Yggdrasil is going to open up and take into it a couple of the young gods and a couple of uh, of human beings and close up so that as the world ends in this huge disaster, Yggdrasil will then open up and they will come out and start the world anew. Mm-hmm. All of these are parts of the, the mythology surrounding Yggdrasil. When Christianity came to the Norse, they adapted the story of Yggdrasil, not as literal history, but as a picture of the gospel. Mm -hmm. What they said was Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, Ragnarok has already happened. Yes. The cross is Yggdrasil, the cross is the tree of life. The cross is the thing which opens up and brings us into the new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. It is the it is the route to eternal life. And you see yeah. this in the iconography that shows up in churches, in the stave churches, in the very way they are constructed. All of this is to point people to Yggdrasil and through Yggdrasil to the cross and through the cross to the message that the old gods are gone. Mm-hmm. And the new world is here through Christ. Yeah. 
that's and that's something that I see across a lot of different cultures. We see it in the Chinese language. Uh, that's that's one thing that that I've read from a book uh, at discovering Genesis in the Chinese language, something like that. I think you might know that book. Um, and then there's there's just all these different things. And and the thing that always fascinated me, you know, I'm like, okay, well, where's the connection in the Bible? That was the thing that I had growing up with this stuff. I'm like, I can see all these connections. I can see how they use this here or there. And I I went through a period where I was really questioning my own faith. It was pretty young, you know, and everything. I was just, but my question was really just, this was the question being posed to me. Why do you need a Jewish backwoods savior, right? Why do you need this 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 little guy over here in the corner? What does he have to do with, with people who believed in Yggdrasil and Odin and whatever else? And the thing that I ultimately got back to is two things from scripture. One, Hebrews. Uh, talking about types and shadows, talking about how God used all kinds of types and shadows throughout history, uh, how Melchizedek, you know, was was the uh, the the priest before the Le Levitical order, <laughs> you know, that was a Noahic connection, whatever it was, he was connected to Noah in some way, uh, and then the other is uh, back in Noah, uh, his his sons, the 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 um promise made to Japheth. A lot of people skip over it and just just talk about this promise to Shem, but the, the, that the that Japheth would be a many people and he would dwell in the tents of Shem. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to see how, especially after the resurrection, but before too, how God, in a very broad and amazing sense, has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promise of Japheth, the nations dwelling in the tents of Shem, the Gentiles, you know, so that's that's amazing to me. Well, yeah, one of the things that Lewis and Tolkien both believe very firmly is that mythologies were ways in which God revealed truth to the pagans. Mm -hmm. It wasn't scripture. It wasn't truth at that level. But he gave them hints and pictures of what would be accomplished in Christ. Right. And thus it is possible to, well, redeem paganism. It is possible. Um, the, the pagan societies, especially the northern ones to Tolkien and Lewis, had tremendous virtues. They also mm -hmm. had tremendous evil in them. Yes. So what was needed was a Christianization of the culture such that the evils that they were given to were brought under control, but the virtues that they advocated were promoted. And as they looked at their own society, they saw that the, these strong Northern virtues were seriously lacking, mm. which I think is one of the reasons why, I mean, you, you read, um, if you understand the concept of northernness, as, as uh, I think that was Tolkien's word for it, if you understand that and you understand the virtues and then you read the abolition of man, mm -hmm. what you discover is that we're completely lacking those virtues of northern, you know, northern culture. Now, for Lewis and Tolkien, that they went north because that was where their imagination took them. Right. Um, we could say the same thing about any other culture. There are great virtues in it, but there's also great evil. 
and we need to purge the evil and preserve the good and promote the good. You know, for Lewis and Tolkien, that was focused on the North, but it doesn't have to be the North. That's actually one of the reasons, you know, this is this is getting away from Dark Ages, and that's fine. We can do that. It's just a conversation. Um, but the the this is why, for all the absolute crazy faults of our culture, you know, I'm thinking particularly of millennial Christians. I'm not even necessarily even thinking of the pagan side of what we're dealing with now, but like there's, there's so much bad that's, that's happened and has been blamed and, and laid at the feet of my generation and Gen Z uh, by, by a lot of folks and, you know, the Disney generation, that sort of a thing. And I have found that the one really good thing about the, the my generation and the generation ahead, uh, ahead of us, so to speak, um, is that, there was a lot of, uh, and this is just my thoughts, but the uh, generation previous to us and the generation previous to that kind of bought in full hook, line, and sinker to a corporate mentality of, of ca a crony capitalism mentality of a lot of things and I'm not talking marxism I'm not I'm not saying anything I, on that no. but but yeah they 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 bought in they said oh yeah I'll take that job I'll live live in the suburban house you know whatever and one of the things that the disney generation so to speak the people who have said follow your heart you know go go live the van life you know all that other kind of thing that they do the one good thing in that is that they are saying there's more there's something transcendent. We don't know what it is because y'all didn't tell us, but we're going to go find it. <laughs> you know, and that that tends to come. There was a little bit of that with the hippies. There was a little bit, you know, with that comes and goes in generations. But it's just, it's fascinating to me. I And, and that's been a big part of my ministry to people my age. I want to say to them, yeah, we got our systematic theologies. And then we've got this kind of stuff that we're talking about. And God speaks in all of it, and <laughs> we need and we need to we need to be searching through all of it and experiencing all of it because He gave it to us as a gift. You know, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that the intellect is the organ of understanding, but the imagination is the organ of meaning. Yes. And mm -hmm. I have been, I have been really focused around the issue of meaning for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's really one of these things that's that's sort of critically important. And mythologies, um, folklore, all of these kinds of things, which can grab your imagination, can also help guide you, therefore, toward meaning. Mm -hmm. um, if you accept this the sort of world I grew up in, where which was all about theoretically, at least all about science and such. Um, there's no meaning to be found there. Mm -hmm. All there are facts. And fact and meaning are two totally different things. Um, I, I've, I've increasingly come to believe that with the medievals, we'll get back to the medievals here, with the medievals, we need to recognize that the physical world, everything around us points beyond itself to spiritual truth and ultimately to its maker. Mm -hmm. You know, so if if you're someone living in the Middle Ages, you know, C.S. Lewis in um, 
the, the discarded image. He says, you know, if you were to bring a medieval man forward, uh, the thing he would be most impressed with is, well, notice his day, it was the card catalog. Uh, it would be database here because everything is organized, everything is orderly. And that's the way medievals thought. They believed mm -hmm. the world should be organized, it should be orderly, place for everything, everything in its place, everything full, all of these kinds of things. But what Lewis doesn't say is that if you brought a medieval person forward and asked him what he thought of our world, my best bet is what he would say is, you know, it's really impressive how much you guys know but you understand nothing. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, let, let, let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. A medieval, a Gothic cathedral, particularly mm -hmm. we'll deal with French Gothic because it has some characteristics that you don't see in some of the others. In order to set the orientation of the nave, the, the main body of the church, um, the bishop would stand holding his crozier up, his staff, at sunrise on Easter. And the shadow of the crozier would then give him the east-west axis of the church. Is it exactly east? No. Does that matter? No. Because it's not about the literal. They then construct the nave of the church. They put in the transepts, which are the cross pieces that make the church cruciform. The altar is always at the east. And the main portal, typically called the royal portal, is on the west. And then there are other, other portals through the, the doors on the transepts. Why is the altar always on the east? Well, symbolically, the east is toward Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, he said in his prayer, when people pray toward this place, hear and answer their prayer. So the people who are in the, the nave, the body of the church, who are facing the altar and are praying toward the altar, they're praying toward Jerusalem. They're praying right. toward Solomon's temple. And they're doing this to fulfill or to, um, to enact Solomon's prayer. But it's more than that. The cathedral itself is supposed to be a picture of Jerusalem. When you look at the book of Revelation and they talk about the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, what you find are it's described in incredibly colorful, beautiful terms. You know, the, the foundations are all of these different kinds of jewels and things like that. The stained glass windows in these cathedrals are designed so that, generally speaking, the ones facing south are going to be New Testament, because that's where most of the light comes from. The one facing north will be Old Testament, but also there'll be a mix of blue and red glass. Blue glass lights up brilliantly in the sunlight. Red glass glows on cloudy days. Mm. So no matter when you go in, you are seeing all of these colors. The, the, the statuary are painted really gaudy colors. You're seeing these incredible colors in the windows and the light from the windows shining on the walls, which were whitewashed, they weren't bare stone, is supposed to remind you of the jewels in the book of Revelation. The cathedral is the New Jerusalem, symbolically. Mm -hmm. So the main portal to the West 
in every French Gothic cathedral over the door of the royal portal, the central portal to the west, there's a picture either of Revelation 4, the throne room of heaven, or of Christ seated in judgment. Every one of them. Because the west, you see, is pointing toward the sunset. The sunset is the end of the day. Therefore, it is symbolically the end of time. Right. And when you are entering the new Jerusalem, you are doing it under the judgment seat of Christ. You are entering eternity there. So yeah. the point being, even the compass directions mean something. Mm. They have significance. And yeah. to the medieval mind, they could look at the world and see it on a multitude of levels simultaneously. Right. They would say, you guys are hopelessly one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. Because that's all we ever see is the surface. And they would see beyond the surface to find meaning. Yeah. In a lot of ways, there's a lot more wisdom in what they're doing than in what we're doing. Yeah, for real. Well, the uh, one of the things that got brought up in my mind. I can never remember the scientific term, but it's not particularly, I mean, we're talking about scientific direct fact, not even being an issue. So for, for now, who cares about the exact term? But um, one of the people, I, I saw a video, I don't remember exactly where I saw it, but there was a guy talking about, and he's obviously a learned guy, whether it's theologically or something, but he he said, this is one of the main reasons, like, I, I can take the Bible as fact, as absolute truth, and he's doing it from a classical standpoint, you know, whatever, but he says, um, ge geologically with the rocks, uh, you know what's significant about the, the stones in the New Jerusalem, uh, the ones that are, that are the precious stones that are named, every single one of them is it's like anisotropic or something is some word. Anyway, he says every single one of them, uh, when you um, put it in uh, uh, under pure light, essentially you filter the light with a, with a, um, what do you call it? A, uh, they have some kind of filter. I can't remember the exact situation, but it's a very specific filter to get what they have termed pure light, right? In, 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 uh, in science. When you look at these various stones, some of them, uh, some of the stones that exist, you know, rubies and diamonds, they look completely clear. They have no color whatsoever in pure light. Every single one of the ones in mentioned in Revelation does the exact opposite. They go completely rainbow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every single one of the ones mentioned are, 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 and they're the most brilliant ones, of course, that go rainbow like that, you know? <laughs> it's like, there's absolutely no way that they would have known about what we call pure light back mm. then, unless they did, <laughs> of course, as we know. But like, it, it's it's like that, there, there's, there's no way that would have been referenced for us, you know, who are this high thinking, you know, academic, scientific, scientism nonsense, you know, like, yeah. and, and so like little things like this throughout the scripture, throughout, you know, our history, our world, they're just these Easter eggs that continue to say, I'm here and I love you, you know? Yeah. Um, and we're, we're supposed to say the same in return. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, the, the thing that's unique about the scriptures to me is that 
if you read it superficially, you can think you get it. You're right. If you if you go down an inch, you'll feel like it's about a foot deep. You mm-hmm. go down a foot, it's a yard deep. You go down a yard, it's a mile deep. Um, there there it, it, it uh, there's really nothing else like it. Right. Um, well, let, let's get back to the Dark Ages. Uh, since yeah, we were let's just, do that. Since we were just talking we about left. cathedrals. Yeah, yeah um, sure. I would I would ask you to consider a modern office building, or for that matter, a modern church, and compare right. it to a medieval cathedral or something like that, um, something comparable in size, and ask which one is more impressive. Mm-hmm. Which one is more beautiful? Which one reflects better the glory of God? Mm-hmm. The Gothic cathedrals are actually particularly because they didn't know the math. These mm-hmm. things are engineering marvels. Yes. Um, you know, and and again, the trying to reconstruct Notre Dame, the more that they're working on it, the more they're finding just how amazing and kind of complex and difficult it is to do what they did. Yes. So, so the, these are incredible feats of engineering. And this opens the door to asking the question, what else do you see in the Middle Ages in terms of, you know, advancement, technological or scientific advancement? Well, let, let's talk about technology first. Um, Vishal Mangalwadi, who is an Indian Christian philosopher, um, points out that um, if you compare technologies in China, say, to mm-hmm. to Europe, the Chinese were producing technological marvels while the Europeans were still flaking stones. Yes. Okay. But there's a fundamental difference when you get to the Middle Ages, there's a fundamental difference in European technology versus Asian technology. In Asia, technologies are developed basically to be playthings for the rich. Yes. They're very, they're incredible, incredible pieces of of of, of engineering. I would argue too uh, that they would have. Uh, uh, sorry, I would argue too that the other reason, or the other thing you see besides just play things for the rich is archival for the rich, uh, scholarly archival, like with mm-hmm. paper and that sort of a thing. We we do sure. see that, but yeah, yeah, you're but, right. It's all for the rich. But let's consider that there were monasteries in China, Tibet, and so on that had bookshelves that rotated so you could move from one book to another to another and you would think that that would be to make study easier it wasn't what they would do is they would put the books on it and they would just rotate it and the clacking sound as this thing rotated was used as a meditation aid huh (laughs) and then you get the the idea like you get with prayer wheels prayer wheel has a prayer inscribed on it and you spin it and that is a way of um mechanizing your devotional life as it turns every time it turns that that's the equivalent of saying the prayer (laughs) interesting so you don't actually have to be engaged all you have to do is spin the thing Uh uh-huh with the books you get karma from from good karma from from um interacting with the books notice i didn't say reading yes spin the wheel you get the clacking you get your meditation (laughs) and all of that and you're getting the words being passed over you over and over again Mm -hmm. This is not <laughs> this is not the way the West thinks. Right. Mangawati points out that the technologies that you see in Europe, for the most part, 
are technologies that are designed to make the work of the average laborer better. Mm -hmm. So rather than a sickle, you develop a scythe so that you can mow a field down more effectively. Right. You develop horseshoes and horse collars because a horse can pull more weight faster with less feed than an ox. Mm. You get um, uh, you get water wheels that, you know, the Romans knew about water wheels. They never bothered to put them up because they're, they're expensive and the Romans used slave labor. Right. In Europe, they begin putting up water wheels because they say, in Genesis, God created human beings to work. God himself is described as a laborer. On the seventh day, he ceased from his labors. Right. So work is good, but with the fall, the ground is cursed because of Adam, and work becomes drudgery, becomes toil, becomes painful. Well, if Christ came, and so so the, the drudge factor in work is a result of sin. Right. But if Christ came to redeem us from the effects of sin, shouldn't that mean that our labor, we should work to make labor more meaningful to bring the redemption that Christ brought into the world. So they begin putting up water wheels, starting actually in Ireland, as near as I can tell, uh, by the sixth century. They're doing overshot wheels, undershot wheels, tidal wheels, all kinds of things. These spread to England to the continent. And these are put up primarily by monasteries initially, and then it's picked up by others. What are they doing? Repetitive mindless work. They're getting, they're grinding grain. They're fulling cloth, they're sawing timber, they're operating uh, bellows for uh, forges, they're operating trip hammers and smithies, um, they're, they're fulling cloth, they're doing all of these things to eliminate drudgery. Yeah. So you've got all of those things with the water wheel, you've got the agricultural stuff, you've got eyeglasses invented in the 13th century, so mm -hmm. that monks could continue their labors when their eyes began to fail. Yeah. You know, I you you develop the chimney. The chimney is a medieval invention. The Romans didn't have chimneys. Mm. And a chimney will cause a fire to burn more efficiently. Yeah. A properly designed chimney. Well, then you start building larger chimneys and attaching bellows to them, and suddenly you go from a very laborious system to extract iron from iron ore by the 15th century, you've developed the blast furnace, a right. furnace that gets so hot that the iron will melt straight out of it. And then there are other things that you develop from there. I mean, we can go on and on and on. The yeah. number of we you can talk literally about an industrial revolution in the Middle Ages. Right. Does anybody ever talk about this? Not unless you take a medieval economic history class. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And yeah. Speak, speaking of that, double entry bookkeeping is an invention of the Italians in about the 14th, 15th century. The books <laughs> of the Italian merchants were so good that you can use modern statistical analyses on them. And this is this is one of the reasons why, you know, there are obvious ethical implications with any new technology. Everyone, you know, I, I, I get that. And I've even heard you guys talk on podcasts with things where I'm like, yes, I agree. Yes, I don't. Or no, I don't. You know, it just depends. But like with AI and stuff, it's it, it, my my thing is like not just AI, but other sorts of technological stuff. 
I, I really kind of side with Doug on this with his uh, book plot activity and, and with Marcus Pittman, who talks about a lot of this kind of stuff. Like we need to figure out as Christians how we can use it and develop it. That's the other thing, develop it in a godly direction. It's not, you know, we can take something that a pagan did and redeem it like this. This is totally doable. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think like, you know, some of the AI stuff I think still has a, 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 a sense of what you're talking about, making the laborers drudgery, you know, uh, easier. But then the other half of it is, um, you know, Machiavelli, <laughs> we've kind of mixed the two and it's like, okay, now we need to figure out, like you were saying with iron ore, we need to figure out how to get the, uh, <laughs> get, get that medieval part out of the Machiavelli. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I I I don't think that Christians are spending enough brain power right now thinking of through the implications of the various kinds of technologies that are coming down the pike right now. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't. You know, we we are. I I'm currently working on a book with Ken Boa, my my uh, mentor and employer actually, mm -hmm. um, uh, called Flourishing in the New Babylon. And what we're doing is it, it's going to come out initially as a series of booklets so that we can update them regularly. And then when all of them are done, we'll ex we'll um, we'll pull them together and re-edit it as a book. Right. But some things are changing so fast that by the time the book is written, the early chapters will be out of date. So we're yeah. we're 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 working it this way. But we started with the with the low hanging fruit, you know, the critical theory stuff and and stuff coming out of the sexual revolution. But from there, we've got to deal with issues of uh, transhumanism, mm -hmm. uh, augmentation versus um, uh, restoration. Mm -hmm. um, from there, we've got to deal with issues of uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, from there, we have to get into AI mm -hmm. and uh, along with all of that surveillance state stuff, mm -hmm. um, which is the primary application of AI right now. Frank. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of the, oh, and then, then a digital currencies. Mm -hmm. Most mm -hmm. people don't understand a central bank digital currency means that the federal government keeps track of every penny. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if it decides you that it doesn't like what you're saying, it can shut you down. And that's or, something that all Or if all you're these... buying too much gas or too much yeah. meat. And that's the thing. All these, all these startups immediately bowing to the IRS was like, oh man, we really like. I don't think people realize how much we lost when Bitcoin and a lot of these others started bowing to the IRS. You know, just on a, hey, don't do that. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like nothing else. You know, so yeah. I mean, yeah. so so all of these things, the technological end of this. Mm -hmm. has got massive worldview implications. It's got mm -hmm. massive practical implications for how we live. It's got massive implications for the church. That's fantastic. And we uh, just are not, we are not dealing with this. Yeah, yeah. Well, everyone who's listening, start thinking about it, right? Maybe we'll figure something out. <laughs> but uh, study your scripture. Um, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. I'm going to tell you one thing uh, after I sign off before you leave. If you have just a second, I won't spend a ton of time on it. Um, everybody, remember, be your family's bard. Do not turn to the right or to the left, and the Lord will be with you wherever you go. Join us next time in the trenches on Poets at War. God of sunset.
these words awoke within you, a stirring and radiant fire, please remember even a bard is worthy of his wages and hire. Go to joshuadavidling.com support to support me and my family.